Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, this is the Sociology Channel. I'm your host, Richard Osijo, Associate Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York. And I'm joined today by Victor Tan Chen, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he's here to talk to us about his book, Cut Loose, Jobless and Hopeless in an Unfair Economy, a book about the uh, experiences of the unemployed the long-term unemployed that is in our post-recession world. Victor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great to be here. Great. So I was wondering if you could just tell us uh, to start out a little bit about your, your background, personal and professional, and really how you came to study this subject and write this book. Sure. So I grew up uh, mostly in New Jersey, uh, near Philadelphia, and uh, my parents are um, Taiwanese immigrants, uh, my uh, dad uh, uh, was a civil engineer before he retired, and my mom uh, a nurse. And um, I got actually interested, um, you know, uh, uh, involuntarily in unemployment because my dad was unemployed, long-term unemployed for a number of years uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, he had education. He had um, uh, a master's degree. Uh, but he was in an industry, uh, the nuclear power industry, uh, you know, helping to build, uh, nuclear power plants. And that industry, uh, you know, as you know, um, kind of dwindled in, the, the 1980s. And so, uh, you know, after Three Mile Island and, and all those concerns about nuclear power. And so he was out of work, uh, you know, struggled as an immigrant with, you know, uh, not the best, uh, English skills to find a new job and, um, and so one of my memories of being a kid is, you know, him uh, working uh, some odd jobs, working um, as a um, janitor at an elementary school and, and uh, you know, driving a, a kind of uh, livery cab for the airport and things like that. Uh, and so it, it, it uh, you know, it had effects, obviously, financially uh, uh, on my uh, family. And uh, I, I kind of took that uh, with me when I went off uh into uh, uh, the working world myself. So um, I, uh, you know, went to uh, Harvard for uh, both my undergraduate and graduate degrees. I, uh, I studied uh, uh, in the joint program on sociology and social policy, uh, you know, with the Kennedy School of Government at, at Harvard, and uh, uh, and worked actually between undergraduate and graduate school as a newspaper reporter at uh, a paper called Newsday uh New York area uh and covered a variety of different issues there including immigration and religion uh and politics and so uh I the reason why I went back to graduate school was um uh, you know I just really wanted to get a deeper understanding of issues of inequality uh in particular um, and, uh, you know, and I continue to do some of the stuff that I used to do as a reporter in terms of talking to people and getting to understand, uh, their stories and their worldviews. And, um, uh, you know, eventually I, uh, got to, uh, work on a book, uh, with Catherine Newman, uh, when I was a graduate student. Uh, it was called The Missing Class, and it was a book about, uh, near poor families, families living just above the poverty line. And some of the challenges they face in terms of, uh, you know, getting access to good childcare, uh, good, uh, schooling for their kids, uh, um, housing, affordable housing, uh, and, uh, you know, healthcare, things like that. Um, so, uh, we wrote that book, um, 
And uh, then I was working on my dissertation uh, and, uh, you know, eventually gravitated toward this issue of unemployment uh, that personally affected me. Um, and uh, But I was interested in talking about a different group of people, um, uh, a much uh, less advantaged group of people, uh, you know, namely um, blue-collar workers in the auto industry. Uh, and uh, this was in 2008, uh, uh, and you, you can remember the financial crisis that occurred there uh, then and how it seemed uh, for a period of time that we wouldn't even have an auto industry, a domestic mm. auto industry, right? We, we might lose Ford. We might lose, uh, well, uh, General Motors and, and Chrysler were much worse off than Ford. Uh, but for a period of time, uh, that was a real possibility. And so I thought uh, at that point that I should study this. I should study um the, the decline of a type of work that was so central to the american story so central uh to the, the emergence of a strong vibrant american middle class uh you know you had good paying uh jobs with uh decent benefits uh that were uh union negotiated and uh, uh this allowed people with less in the way of education uh people you know unlike my father who didn't have advanced degrees even they could you know uh get a decent livelihood support their families uh perhaps even just on one income and uh you know see upward mobility in terms of their lives and their children's lives and so um, the book is about unemployment, but I think it also speaks to this broader um, divide, a growing divide in our society uh, between, uh, uh, well, obviously between elites and, and the rest of us, but also uh, in terms of people who have access to good jobs, you know, good paying jobs with benefits and, and possibilities for advancement and those who don't and the people who don't uh, tend to have less education tend to uh, be people of color uh, tend to uh, not have as much advantages growing up uh, as, as some of us so I thought that I should look at this broader changing landscape of work uh, and inequality and uh, unemployment and the decline of good jobs for the less educated have a lot to do with that. Great. Yeah, thanks for that background, especially how your personal background relates to this. It was obviously a source of uh, personal and uh, intellectual inspiration. So it's uh, always cool to hear about that. So you, you start out pretty much each chapter and throughout each chapter are these uh, portraits really of some of the folks who you studied and you start the book with this story of this man named John. He's a, a laid off auto worker. He, I believe is from the South, right? I think he's from Alabama. Yeah, yeah. And he grew up not knowing who his parents were. He grew up with his grandmother. He's been working his whole life, left home, right after high school, eventually made his way up to to Michigan, to Detroit. And he just very interestingly, he describes his job at the auto plant as like his mother and his father. And I thought that was a very, very powerful statement. So I'm curious to hear what what do you think is being, what did you want to really foretell in the book through John's story and through this this real powerful imagery of a job being like a parent. Yeah. So uh, when I talked to John, um, it was interesting. I mean, he kind of represents uh, a lot of this kind of 
optimistic American spirit uh, uh, where, you know, we, we, we were talking for a while um, in the beginning and, you know, he was very positive about even the, the fact that he was uh, unemployed, he felt wasn't a hindrance, he would eventually find a new job. Uh, you know, he was putting forward this kind of, um, this uh, attitude of just, uh, American can-do um, uh, individualism, frankly, um, and uh, as we talked, you know that kind of um, view, that kind of um, uh, you know, kind of uh, per- perception of his kind of fell away a bit. Uh, you know, he became a bit more, um, you know, less guarded during the conversation, and uh, you know, at, at, at finally, in the middle of it, he was he was talking, you know rather emotionally about the family background you were describing and uh, um, the fact that really when you found the steady job at an auto plant, a parts uh, manufacturing plant, you know, that gave him stability. That gave him a sense of dignity, too, that he could support uh, his family, his two kids, uh, on his uh, 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 income as a, uh, uh, as a polisher in this um, plant that uh, made uh, truck bumpers. Um, and uh, it was just striking that, you know, I saw him as a symbol, this, this kind of sense of American um, self-reliance and, and uh, um, you know, um, and, and pride and, and uh, you know, a sense that you as an individual could, could rise up and yet kind of running uh, headlong and crashing into the reality of this new economy where, you know, you um, maybe you're on the losing side of this equation where, you know, some people have great jobs and some people don't and some people cannot find the good jobs that they used to have. And I think that's the situation for John and a lot of the workers I, I interviewed. This was a dream job in a sense, right? They often had applied for jobs at, uh, you know, big car companies where they went by a lottery basis, right? And maybe if you got that job, then, uh, you know, it's like you had won the lottery. That's what a lot of people had told me. This was a ticket to, you know, middle-class stability. And so to lose that livelihood, uh, you know, had a huge impact on these families and their sense of uh, upward mobility for not just themselves, but also for uh, their kids. So, um, so I wanted to, to speak to uh, that reality um, and, uh, and and understand, you know, what was going on in the economy and what the consequences uh, were of the transitions we're making uh, towards uh, jobs, you know, that uh, favor more educated workers, but also uh, this growing inequality that favors certain uh, households, frankly, certain individuals who can give their children uh, a leg up in terms of education, in terms of uh, skill building from uh, a very early age, and uh, you know, John and and uh, many of uh, his coworkers, uh, you know, uh, stand on the other side of the track, so to speak, in in terms of that uh, uh, that kind of uh, gap in our society. Yeah, it really, it really sets a great tone. And my my next question relates to what you were just discussing, and that is the the, the notion that the United States, obviously, that it represents this meritocratic system this uh, very fair uh, system for anybody who's willing to work and to work hard, that they're going to get uh, what they, what they deserve. I mean, they should have the freedom to earn whatever they, whatever they uh, want. But one of the key 
concepts in this book, obviously, is this term of stunted meritocracy, discussing some of the limits and the tensions that are that are really inherent to this meritocratic system that gets pushed as an ideal and as something that is right and just. Yes, and I think it is hidden to a lot of Americans because we, you know, we think in uh, individual terms, right? We think about what we can do to get ahead, what our children uh, can do to be, you know, successful and, and secure in their lives, and uh, we tend, as as you know, human beings in general do, I think. Uh, we tend not to think of, you know, the bigger picture, the kind of structural constraints, economic constraints, and uh, uh, political constraints that uh, hem us in as, as individuals in terms of what we can achieve. And I think that um, that's part of the problem in uh, American society is grappling with uh, those that, that kind of uh, gap, that kind of disconnect between, uh, you know, how we view our lives at the individual level. Level and, and these broader structures, and so um, the idea here, what I discuss is, uh, you know, how people think about the economy, how they think about, um, uh, you know, what is moral within the economy in terms of uh, hard work and the value of that, in terms of meritocracy, and the view that uh, you know only people who have talent and hard work uh, uh, should, you know, be the ones on top, should be advancing society. And how that view kind of conflicts with the reality where we have a system that I would say increasingly uh, is uh, divided in terms of not just uh, education and, and how higher educated or more highly educated individuals can, can do well in, in the new economy, but also in terms of politics that uh, you have certain uh, interest groups uh, uh, which tend to be more wealthy interest groups uh, that are able to uh, shape policy uh, to their uh, financial betterment, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, obviously the financial sector in, uh, you know, it's um, uh, the ways it, it lobbies for specific policies that uh, allow it to uh, uh, make a lot of money. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, other groups as well, professional groups and so on, have a certain ability to uh, get their way to organize collectively, whether it's in professional associations or, or other groups. Uh, and, Yet, you know, the groups uh, below them, you know, uh, working class people, which used to have unions to, to do this for them, right? They used to have uh, a form of collective action uh, to uh, support their interests within the, the broader political system. Only um, 11% of American workers today are members of unions, right? It used to be about one third of Americans. And, uh, you know, Seven percent of the private sector is uh, uh, unionized, right? So, uh, dramatically different situation uh, for the um, for working class people uh, who, even if they weren't members of unions, uh, benefited from that culture. You know, there's been research. I'm thinking of you know Bruce Western and, and Jake Rosenfeld's work about how uh, you know the presence of unions lifted up wages for all workers, right? Uh, that it led to a kind of competition for uh, labor. It also led to the development of social norms about what it's uh, what's ex uh, expected and what's acceptable to pay people and how big of a gap there was, uh, there should be between what the CEO was paid and what the ordinary worker was paid. You know, that kind of uh, cultural and economic force 
countervailing power to corporations has disappeared. And, you know, when we see uh, the outcomes of that now in these unprecedented uh, levels of inequality, according to, you know, Thomas Piketty and, and Emmanuel Say's work, uh, unprecedented levels of income inequality and wealth inequality that we haven't seen since the 1920s, right? Those kind of play into this broader uh, picture of the decline of institutions like labor unions and like interventionist government policies that protected uh, people at the bottom and middle of our society. Right. And speaking of you know, rising inequality and this, this stunted meritocracy idea is also this very strong culture of judgment against individual failings and talk about, you know, to mention wealthy people who are doing their best to maintain their own uh, privilege and advantage. I, I recently read a quote from from Trump from a few years ago, from before he even was considering running for president, in which he talks about coal miners and says, you know, coal miners, people in, in West Virginia and so on in Appalachia, you know, they you hear their grandfather died of black lung. And then some guy's father died of black lung and then the son died of black lung. He says, I would never would have gotten black lung. You know why? Because I would have left and I never would have worked in the mines, you know. So it, essentially saying your your health, your your ill health and your your own problems there are your problems and it's your fault. You never should have stayed there to begin with. You should have just left. Uh, of course, this is the very same group that he and and others uh, within his party have been trying to court, right, and have been successful yeah, is- in courting. And I, I just I, I thought about the culture of judgment and uh, what these workers you 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 describe uh, experienced uh, as I was as I was hearing that. Yeah, it's. it's- that 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 comment is really shocking. I hadn't heard that. And uh, yeah, it's from it, I think it was uh, a Playboy interview from uh, okay. I don't know how many years ago, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that that also speaks to the fact that Donald Trump really has I don't know, he has no real political convictions. He kind of you know because he now he's talking about how you know essential coal mining is uh, in, in you know American industry and all that. So. But putting that aside, putting my politics aside, um, I would um, uh, say that, uh, you know, that, that he speaks to this kind of uh, winners and losers kind of rhetoric that we see so so strongly in American society. And in some ways, I think it's gotten worse because before we had a sense of community, you know, you know what we call social capital, right, kind of connecting people, and there wasn't as much. Uh, isolation, uh, you know, uh, specifically between rich and poor within uh, our country. Um, and, uh, you know, that has changed. And I think that, uh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, he, he talks explicitly about uh, um, how America doesn't win anymore, right? Uh, that the whole point of uh, this kind of uh, existence that we have, economic and otherwise, is, is really to win at this game. And I think that leads to, um, uh, you know, a sense that those who can fail within this competition, uh, they deserved it to, uh, you know, uh, they deserve their position of, of being uh, poor, being unemployed, uh, because they didn't prepare. And you saw, you see that a lot in terms of their reaction to the decline of the auto industry, the decline of uh, unions, uh, you know, the sense that, you know, they had it coming. Right? I mean, that was the name of uh, a uh, chapter in my book, uh, you know, and that was, 
you know, that that's an attitude out there that, you know, people who aren't uh, prepared for this new economy, uh, they deserve what they've gotten, and therefore we shouldn't really have too much sympathy. They should be retraining. They should you know, be finding new jobs. And, and, you know, to some extent, you know, you want them to do that. We want to have uh, good retraining policies. We want to have good education uh, and help people along to new careers. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, there's a structural problem here, too. I mean, two-thirds of Americans uh, over uh, 25 and older do not have a bachelor's degree. You know, this this is a pretty uh, large part of our population, uh, and even the most ambitious kind of educational policies that we can think of, you know, is not going to be able to um, reach a lot of these folks. And, and frankly, there's just not a good enough good jobs out there, especially in uh, coal mining country, for instance. Uh, you know, where are these uh, individuals uh, going to find the kinds of jobs that helped, uh, you know, support their families and provide a decent livelihood uh, in the past? Where uh, are we going to, um, you know, uh, put folks who, uh, you know, right now are kind of seen as superfluous uh, within the economy? And so I think um, there is this kind of uh, sense of judgment, but that, uh, you know, again, conflicts with the reality that it's just hard to find a good job in this society. And, and people are frankly fed up. You know, people are dropping out of the labor market uh, because they, you know, are discouraged by the fact there aren't new, uh, new jobs or good jobs. Uh, that are out there for them. And so um, I think this is, uh, you know, part of our dilemma as Americans that uh, we're still holding on to these uh, myths about meritocracy amid this growing reality of inequality and declining opportunity and declining chances, you know, as uh, Raj Chetty's recent work uh, has shown declining chances to really uh, do better than uh, your parents have done. And the sense of progress that has been so essential to uh, American identity and our sense of ourselves as, you know, a, um, a land of opportunity. Yeah, these folks who study, they struggle time and again to to gain the skills that they would need to move up uh, to uh, problem through whether it's problematic retraining policies or, or problematic uh, retraining programs that they encounter, or it's their experiences with bureaucracy, or it's through the, the impersonality of a lot of these programs and policies, and also something you call the, the new technology of meritocracy. I think that's a really, really fascinating concept that you came up with. Oh, thanks. I, I think that... Um we got to think too about how it, we kind of uh, relentlessly, I think nowadays, measure and evaluate uh, workers. And you know, this is just about the progress of capitalism, the progress of technology, uh, and greater efficiencies in how we operate. But you know, you could see this um, uh, among employment in white collar sectors, uh, probably even more so in terms of, you know, there's always these kind of. Uh, uh, ways of measuring productivity among workers. Uh, you know, I, I think I've written about how Amazon is kind of like this, uh, the extreme case of that, right? Where they constantly had reviews of performance and had, uh, you know, coworkers evaluate you, you know, these three, you know, 360 kind of approaches to, um, evaluation. And the stress was so much that, you know, uh, 
uh, well, first of all, people will get fired for not performing. If you are at the bottom of a list of workers in a, in a unit, you, you, would, you could be axed uh, pretty easily. And people were so stressed out. You know, you had people crying at their desks, uh, according to a New York Times report. You had people uh, just kind of uh, caught in this web of anxiety and, uh, uh, and competition. And so, um, you know, that's an extreme. But I think these kind of processes of, uh, for instance, having people go through batteries of tests to get a job, which, you know, a lot of uh, uh, you know, workers uh, um, experience even at the lower levels of, uh, of uh, the labor market, um, you know, constantly being assessed as a worker in terms of, uh, you know, for instance, this one worker I spoke to, you know, he uh, left uh, or he lost his job in the auto industry, uh, lost his career in the auto industry and, and moved on to work at, uh, uh, you know, a retail store. And, uh, you know, he was kind of shocked by the fact that, uh, well, first of all, he couldn't get enough hours to really support himself because um, uh, those were limited. And also, you know, the way to get more hours, he soon learned, was to sell credit cards or get people to sign up for credit cards uh, at the cash register where he worked, right? If you could get more people to sign up, then you could get more hours. And so there's this kind of, again, this kind of measurement of your performance that uh, uh, even at these kind of, you know, uh, arguably menial jobs, uh, uh, people are being ex- assessed in these ways. And I think that creates, you know, obviously more uh, stress for for workers, but, you know, it, it's part of this, um, just this machine of, of the market economy that is always trying to increase efficiency and, and get more out of uh, labor than it did in the past. And, uh, and I think all workers, uh, academics included, <laughs> should fear these processes because, uh, you know, they're coming for us too. I mean, there, there are out there already metrics, private industry metrics of the uh, productivity of uh, uh, professors and how much we publish and, and where we publish and so on. Uh, and it's becoming more and more um, you know, systematized. Uh, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're facing these pressures as well. I'm sure it becomes like, like Taylorism 2.0 in a sense. And, yeah. you know, but we're also folks who are in a position to, uh, that we may be even used to it a little bit, but we we're, we're obviously much more equipped to, uh, to handle some of these conditions, I think, than, than some of the folks who, who you studied, who, who were, you know, socialized into thinking that all you really needed to do was was work hard, particularly at a specified set of tasks, uh, certain skills, not these you know softer skills, not these uh, presentation of self sort of skills that they uh, often fail in doing. So it's a it's just a really fascinating way of looking at this these new ways of of measuring and these new metrics and the the impacts they're having on uh, inequality. Um, and Taylorism too. Uh, just to add something, Taylorism too was was predicated on this notion that, well, you know, you would have a good worker who would become more efficient, and uh, he or she would reap the benefits of that efficiency, uh, yeah. reap the benefits of that greater productivity, and you know, for a time that worked uh, in our in our labor force. That uh, you know, uh, the gains were shared relatively uh, more. Uh, uh, equally, um, and and workers benefited from productivity growth, and and you saw you see that in the, in the metrics, right? Productivity goes up, uh, wages go up until the 1970s, where they become greatly disconnected. Those two trends, um, and it's because of these broader trends of inequality and and the ways the market economy operates. Uh, so that uh, you know, greater productivity doesn't necessarily lead to uh, greater um, you know uh, wealth for the worker, right? Uh, 
that uh, in some ways, you know, becoming more efficient uh, um, can, uh, you know, just becomes uh, a way of, um, you know, uh, you know, well, those become the expectations and then uh, uh, these processes of ra- these processes of rationalization and downsizing uh, and slimming down the workforce kind of ensure that, uh, well, you're not going to see the benefits of your greater productivity. That's just going to go into the pocket of uh, mm-hmm. the owner of, of capital, right? So I mean, the, these general trends have happened and um, the kind of optimism that someone like Frederick Winslow Taylor had about uh, this greater efficiency, I don't think necessarily that has come to pass, certainly not for uh, people on the lower levels of the labor market uh, who have seen their work conditions, I think, uh, mm. worsen in many ways. Right, yeah, well, it's like the shift from this uh, collectivized risk to individualized risk Yeah, uh, that we've seen, yeah. So it's something we haven't discussed yet is that this book is a comparative study. So you studied auto workers and parts workers in, in the U.S. and in Canada in, uh, is it Hamilton? Uh, it's in Windsor. Windsor, Windsor, yeah. Which is so right, right, across right across the border. The yeah, right across yeah. the border from from Michigan in the U.S. And you started out by expecting the Canadian policy advantage to uh, to be very significant in the outcomes of these workers. I think a lot of Americans think that Canada is this socialist utopia where if if anything goes wrong, you'll be you'll be just fine, uh, and and the the government will uh, step in and take care of you. But you found it to be a lot more mixed. It's a, the case is a lot more complicated and well-designed policies in either country can uh, really make the difference. It's not so much that Canada is this uh, ready and able utopia in case any disaster strikes. It's really far more about the design of the policy and the implementation of the policy. Yes. And, you know, and you got to give credit where it's due in, in America uh, during the Great Recession, you know, the Obama administration pushed forward, you know, dramatic expansions of unemployment benefits uh, in terms of the time limits and so on. Uh, you know, those have all expired. But, you know, for a period of time, you know, the things were more generous on the American side uh, in terms of, um, you know, how long you could stay on unemployment benefits, right? So that that was helpful. And, and you know, obviously the economic stimulus uh, you know, uh, that uh, the Obama administration pushed forward and also helped uh, a lot of uh, communities. Um, and so there, there's obviously room for, uh, you know, uh, policymakers to make wise decisions in either country uh, or any country to uh, help workers. Uh, but, uh, you know, we see in America, even at the tail end of the Obama administration, uh, uh, you know, that we kind of slid back in terms of uh, not uh, continuing those uh, uh, those kind of initiatives, uh, obviously with unemployment benefits, but also, you know, with uh, job retraining and, and so on. Like there isn't there hasn't been that investment uh, in that safety net for uh, unemployed workers, particularly long term unemployed workers, <clears throat> you know, people that have been out of work for six months or more, which are uh, a quarter of the unemployed uh, today, which is. Uh, level um, that is still higher than we've seen uh, since uh, you know uh, the 1980s. Uh, you know it, it's it hasn't gone down uh, to the extent that it has in in past recessions, and it speaks to the fact that our society or our labor force has become uh, much more unequal as well. That there's some people that are just 
that are fare very badly uh, within this economy, uh, you know, and and others who who uh, do well, and and there's a gap between them. So um, I think that you know you got to take a, a kind of nuanced view about policy uh, in this modern economy because. Uh, yeah, I think there are specific policies that do help a lot, like retraining, like universal health care, which uh, is so important for people, you know, struggling as it is uh, financially and also, you know, dealing with depression and other issues. Um, but uh, in some ways, you know, the, uh, you know, policy is hemmed in by these broader trends in the market economy and, um, and uh, you know, what we're going to do to help uh, workers, uh uh, in the absence of good jobs, uh, I think that's going to take more aggressive government action uh, to, you know, generate uh, good public sector jobs in the absence of private sector jobs. Uh, but that's not on the horizon, certainly in America, and, and I think Canada, though it has uh, under Trudeau, uh, pushed forward uh, more in the way of, say, family allowances, uh, you know, payments to uh, uh, parents with children, uh, you know, Still, the, the aggressive government approach uh, that might address and, and balance out some of these trends, um, you know, is is hard to find uh, in you know uh, in the global economy today, given all these kind of uh, pressures of globalization, of technology, and so on that we've been talking about. Yeah, let's let's talk more about family too, because it's one of the specific policies that you discuss, and it's also where I find one of the more personal uh, aspects of the story that these folks uh have to tell family really really structures like it does really social life but really structures the experiences of uh unemployment and you talk a lot about how uh being unemployed really affects families especially families who are really kind of already vulnerable um and how they discuss the the situation that they find themselves in um particularly what i liked was the the discussion of how how gender and gender roles within the family uh really play out yeah i think um that we often forget the kind of emotional toll that unemployment has on uh relationships as well right i mean uh um to lose your job um, as a man, but but also increasingly, I would say as a, as a woman, to lose your your job when you know households are ba- barely staying afloat on two incomes, um, that that has a big blow on on uh, um, on, on your self you know perception to to some degree, but also you know how um, your partner um, you know uh, views you and and. Uh, I think uh, in our society um, today, um, that's more and more clear um, because uh, you need those two incomes uh, in order to uh, stay afloat. Um, and so you had a situation where, or situations among many of my workers, uh, you know, more so among Americans, frankly, uh, where uh, the loss of a job translated into, you know, huge problems in their relationships uh, because, uh, the pressures, the financial pressures, uh, and also, you know, the sense of identity because, you know, work is so central uh, to who we are, right? You know, it's uh, a source of meaning. It's a source of uh, increasingly in the absence of other forms. Uh, it's a source of social connection, right? That uh, uh, you make friends through your work uh, and, and uh, you have that community. Uh, but that disappears when you uh, experience unemployment, especially long-term unemployment, which is uh, you know, just by its very nature, isolating. And 
uh, people become ashamed of their situation. Uh, it becomes harder to talk about other situation. Uh, and you could see here the role of uh, a good um, healthcare system because uh, a lot of these folks uh, on the American side in particular, you know, could not find help uh, uh, in terms of uh, mental health therapy or, or, or uh, much less, uh, you know, uh, medication to deal with some of the stresses uh, that they were experiencing. Um, so, I think uh, family allowances and things like that, uh, while they're no panacea, I did notice that in Canada, you know, people um, seemed a bit more uh, or a bit less anxious about uh, their situations because of some of the government help that uh, they were receiving. Uh, and they, some of them explicitly said that, that, you know, because of this program that I'm in, this retraining program that also pays uh, stipend, um, I, I can, you know, think about the future and I feel... A sense of, uh, you know, a sense that I'm contributing, that I, I'm learning, uh, you know, uh, um, in school, I'm getting education, and, and I could uh, move on from here. That there's some hope ahead of me, and some hope for my family. Uh, and in the absence of that safety net, uh, you know, uh, you could see the despair among uh, many of uh, uh, many workers who are long-term unemployed, and sometimes that despair leads to uh, marital separation or, or even divorce. Mm which was quite uh, uh, noticeable among the people I talked to. Yeah, and the, I found the mental health discussions throughout the book to be very enlightening, especially since I think that's a topic in general that doesn't get discussed, obviously, often enough, but especially among this uh, population, I don't think. It's a, a almost doubly vulnerable population in the sense that they're left unemployed and then left with very few resources to cope with the mental stresses that come from their unemployment. Yeah, and then there's this, uh, the broader culture where, you know, you are to blame for the situation. I, maybe you're not to blame for losing your job, especially during recession, right? I mean, you know, uh, companies were being downsized left and right at that time. But for long-term unemployed, if you're out of work for six months, well, then there's something wrong with you, right? You're seen as uh, damaged goods, uh, you know, not just uh, by, you know, people around you, but also by potential employers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discrimination um, as research, you know, shows of uh, uh, against people that have been out of work for a long period of time. Um, and, uh, you know, so that this broader culture says that you uh, um, uh, bear a lot of responsibility for that. And, uh, um, you know, you should just really get out there and find a job, you know, but, you know, if there's no good jobs out there, um, uh, it, it's it's a, a situation that uh, people find themselves in, and and they, um, you know, they deal with it uh, in, in sometimes very negative ways in terms of depression, in terms of uh, uh, other, uh, in terms of uh, negative behaviors, and, and so on. So, I think uh, there there's that aspect, and also uh, we you know tend to look at things through um, economic lens uh, in terms of how economists understand, you know, the health of the economy and the health of uh, workers in terms of wages and employment. Uh, and I think as sociologists, we have something to say about, you know, what kind of social impacts that has on people in terms of their sense of purpose in life and their sense of uh, uh, security uh, that allows uh, their, their families to be, um, uh, you know, healthy and, uh, uh, and prosperous. Yeah, so it's something that you that you mentioned earlier. You gave us some of the numbers of union membership and obviously union decline. 
And something I was thinking about as as I was reading the book, and at one point you mentioned it, how uh, the government and you know various political groups and, and movements reacted very differently to the Great Depression of the the 1930s compared to this most recent uh, Great Recession. And you know, most recently, policies have they've mostly been following this this arc of uh, economic policy that we can say began in the 70s, uh, pro corporate. Uh, open markets, fewer regulations, a weaker social safety net, um, and obviously weaker, weaker unions. And, but, but the reactions that these workers have to it is really fascinating. So we would think that these more, you know, uh, center, left of center, perhaps union workers would be, they'd be against this shift. But you found that many of them, they agree with this, this more individualistic achievement ideology that we hear from elites. Yeah, well, the, the institutions have crumbled in many ways. Uh, unions, uh, um, you know, they're just not the, the presence that it used to be. And, and as a result, you know, what's the alternative? And, and, and workers, you know, they're pragmatic people. They just don't see, um, you know, unions coming back strong. At least, you know, the rank and file uh, union members uh, are kind of wary about uh, those uh, those possibilities. And, um you know, I think that in the absence of uh, the sorts of institutions that could, um, uh, you know, provide some hope that things will change, you know, people just hunker down and, and uh, um, try to do what's best for themselves uh, and their families. Um, and, um, and, and you know, there there is um, uh, a lot of anger, uh, not just about... Uh, uh, the political system, but, you know, also about, uh, the way, um, uh, you know, uh, unions are run, uh, and the way that corporations are run, you know, there's anger all around and frustration all around among the workers I talked to. Uh, and perhaps, you know, I did my research, you know, before, obviously before this, uh, current political moment, but, you know, perhaps some of that anger has translated into uh, just a kind of uh, anti-establishment kind of view toward politics. Like, you know, screw all these politicians that uh, are in office currently. We got to have a change. We got to clear things out. And I think, you know, Donald Trump capitalized on that kind of sentiment. Uh, uh, it's unfortunate that his policy prescriptions uh, probably won't help a lot of these workers who feel this frustration and this, this despair. But um uh, I think, uh, you know, what what uh, avenues or what kind of options do they have except pulling, uh, you know, uh, or, or voting in ways that uh, disrupt the system? I think they're, they're, that that is a kind of sign in itself of the degree of uh, anger out there that uh, they would take a chance uh, like they did uh, in the November election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, but in terms of solutions, obviously we can talk about politicians and specific policies, but I think the biggest uh, takeaway solution from from your book, and it's, I'd say it's it's a very uh, poetic part of the book, and I mean that in uh, a very positive sense, um, is the the argument of a morality of grace uh, as a solution to this this winner take all uh, approach, market based approach to uh, to our society, which you, you say is a is an idea that can speak to really the left and the right and when you when you break it down so what is the tell us about this this morality of grace yeah well it's an attitude um that or a perspective that um 
you know, has roots uh, throughout uh, um, American history, uh, in fact, you know, this notion of grace uh, uh, that the Puritans uh, for, who first came to America, you know, kept with them, uh, this sense that, you know, uh, you didn't achieve salvation through good works, that uh, it was by God's grace alone that you were saved, right? I mean, there, there, it was a more a narrow view of this than, than I'm proposing, but, uh, you know, you, you have this idea out there. And, and so the, the central point here is that uh, it's, it's contrary to this, this broader uh, culture of judgment that we have, where we're always evaluating, measuring people's performance, and we're always judging them on, what, you know, how moral they are based on that uh, performance. Uh, and an idea of grace is basically that uh, it's an idea of radical forgiveness, of radical acceptance, and uh, a sense that in the big scheme of things, like, does this competition, you know, really matter? Does it define our lives and, and uh, the way we treat other people? And, and so what I'm proposing is, is really just a, uh, a return to some sort of balance that we had in the past. And I, I spoke about the kind of these historical uh, antecedents in terms of uh, uh, this, this viewpoint. Uh, uh, and I think we've gone too far in recent uh, decades to uh, an extreme viewpoint of competition, of meritocracy, and so on, uh, that doesn't recognize uh, these broader concerns that we as human beings have about our lives. Uh, and so how does this, you know, play out in, in our politics? Well, I think, uh, you know, the idea of grace is, you know, rooted in this Christian ideology or Christian theology, that is. Uh, but, you know, it can apply more broadly. It can apply secularly, too, in the sense that uh, uh, of, you know, just uh, acceptance for, you know, the way things are and, and, uh, and kind of uh, pulling back from this very, uh, judgmental view of, of other people. And, and I think given its uh, rootedness uh, if through, in Christian theology, you know, it potentially could appeal to uh, people on the right as well. And I'm um, uh, speaking, too, of, of particular uh, writings of, you know, evangelical uh, leaders in, in America, um, people like David Platt, who have written about the kind of uh, um, of the uh, excesses of the American dream, this view that we uh, can only succeed through our uh, acquisition of material and, and uh, success and, and fame and so on, uh, you know, maybe we should pull back from that. And I think uh, a lot of people on the right would agree with that. Uh, you know, maybe not those in Washington right now, but uh, more broadly. Uh, and a lot of people on the left uh, would, would uh, agree that uh, maybe we shouldn't be so focused on uh, scarcity and and, uh, uh, and and who has what, but uh, you know maybe there's enough abundance within our uh, modern capitalist society to provide uh, you know a decent standard of living for all uh, Americans, right? And uh, we should you know kind of hold to that and not be so caught up in this um, this greater competition, this greater rat race that a lot of us uh, are too uh, hunkered down to critique. Yeah, that reminded me of the um, political philosophy of John Rawls, uh, the the idea non non judgment as a as a critique of utilitarianism, which is just so pragmatic and so practically oriented, and that blends so well with uh, with open market capitalism. You know, the idea of just you know veils of of ignorance that we we should have when approaching uh, dealing with uh, other people and not considering their their pasts or their their baggage or their their social 
backgrounds or anything like that? Yeah, and I think that um, you know we we need to get beyond in some ways the bean counting that uh, you know that is kind of inherent in this utilitarian view of, of the world and that's captured so well and in uh, you know neoclassical economics and so on. You know, we, our lives are more than that. They're more than preferences. They're more than uh, these kinds of. Uh, uh, market interactions that we have, and I think you know uh, a perspective of, of grace is one that we naturally take at it later in our lives when we realize you know uh, you know in the end of things in the final assessment you know what does it matter uh, exactly how much we've accomplished in our careers you know uh, you know we think of bigger uh, things we think of family we think of friends we think of what difference we made in people's lives and. And uh, everyone can do that. It's not an achievement kind of uh, uh, that uh, you you need to pursue. Um, and I think that kind of viewpoint should balance out some of uh, the kind of natural uh, need we do we have to create and be and prosper and, and improve ourselves. You know that that's definitely a good thing. It's whether it's become too. Uh, much the focus of our lives in a very harmful way for ourselves and for our families. Mm, mm. So let me shift over to talking about methodology a little bit. Um, you told us about your personal background and a little bit about your uh, professional background, particularly as a reporter at one point. So I'm curious to hear what the experience was like for you to go and speak to these folks who are in a very vulnerable position in their lives, who have been through a lot, who, as you mentioned, are are dealing in many cases with some type of mental health issue or issues. So I'm really just curious to hear. Uh, it's mostly an interview-based study. So uh, just quite simply, what was it like to to speak to these folks? How did you? How were you yeah. able to get them to? Uh, to really open up to you about this very, very uh, personal uh, situation they find themselves in. Well, I was surprised, um, you know, how welcoming um, uh, the folks I talked to were. You know, uh, a lot of them embraced me with open arms, and I still keep in touch with a, a number of them. And uh, um, and it was it was kind of interesting because you know I had a lot of anxieties. Uh, uh, you know, frankly, being Asian American, uh, not uh, a big population in, in the plants uh, there, um, being some egghead from Harvard in graduate school, right? And, and uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was, uh, but they didn't really seem to care, you know. Um, you know, I think um, they appreciated someone listening to them, and, and, uh, um, and uh, quite a few of them, you know, told me afterwards that it was helpful to kind of get things off their chests, uh, things sometimes they couldn't even tell, you know, their spouses or close friends about, uh, because, uh, because of this judgment, this kind of, uh, uh, this culture that, you know, says you got to suck it up and, and not, uh, uh, not complain. And, uh, you know, and it was really admirable how they were trying, uh, you know, many of them trying to truck along in the face of things, but, uh, they also had these, um, uh, these fears and these frustrations that um, uh, they needed to tell someone about. So, you know, my role as an interviewer um, um, is just basically to just sit there and listen and, and let people tell their stories uh, and see where the conversation goes. And uh, um, and I think that was helpful to me as a researcher in, in a broader sense, too, because uh, you know, as we were talking about, I was really focused uh, from the beginning of the study on 
the policy differences um, and, uh, you know, how the social safety nets in the two countries uh, led to different outcomes or, or didn't lead to different outcomes. And uh, as I began talking to people, I, I became more interested in the culture, <laughs> to be honest, uh, um, that that was a huge part of it, too, how people viewed uh, their lives, how they viewed their successes or failures. Uh, plays a huge role in how people adapt to uh, a situation like uh, unemployment, uh, which is which can be a huge crisis in people's lives. And so um, that came out in, in a lot of these interviews that they they saw things uh, in individualistic terms, in meritocratic terms, or their their spouses, or family members, or children saw uh, these things in those terms about you know what uh, they could provide um, as breadwinners. Uh, and so um, I, I think uh, that's something that we uh, qualitative sociologists uh, uh, benefit from, from is that flexibility and that uh, willingness to uh, take uh, uh, the study where the data uh, lead us. And so, um, so I definitely um, appreciated how uh, the respondents uh, I had, you know, were just willing to disclose things. Uh, um, and, and uh, talk about their situations with, uh, I think, a lot of candor and a lot of uh, uh, detail, a lot of, uh, you know, sensitivity. Uh, I mean, you know, these are kind of, a lot of them are hard-boiled, you know, union members and factory workers and so on, but, you know, there was, there was a great deal of emotion that came out in interviews, uh, and uh, uh, especially uh, thinking about, uh, you know, how far they had come as individuals, uh, you know, thinking about their families, their parents, and, and what they had gone through. You know, a lot of them were, uh, you know, um, second or third or, or later generation auto workers, right? This had been so central to their families' uh, histories uh, as well, and now that was uh, disappearing uh, for them. And, uh so, you know, it was it was definitely a moving experience uh, for me uh, as a researcher, and I, you know, I could uh, feel that connection too to, to having grown up, uh, you know, obviously with many more advantages, but uh, having grown up uh, in a household uh, where there was long-term unemployment, you know, that there's that uh, sense of uh, shame, there's a sense of um, of uh, you know this difficulty in talking about things and. Uh, and it has an impact whether it's stated uh, or not. And um, so I think there's a value uh, in this kind of, these kind of conversations uh, um, that we often lose in a broader economic analysis of, of these trends. Mm, yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so there are a lot of more topics we can obviously get into, uh, but I see that we have taken up a lot of your time already, Victor. Uh, why don't you conclude a little bit by telling us what you've been working on these days? Sure. Um, so now I'm trying to look at, uh, you know, where the labor market is headed in, in terms of the opposite direction. Uh, you know, I've, I, I was studying uh, auto workers, off, uh, union members uh, uh, who spoke to this uh, older economy of lifetime employment and good uh, Good wages and, and benefits and livelihoods for people with less in the way of education. And now I'm studying entrepreneurship and I kind of see it as, uh, you know, a very different kind of sensibility. I'm looking at, uh, with my colleague here at uh, VCU, uh, Jesse Goldstein, we're looking at uh, entrepreneurial training programs for college students and how, uh, you know, 
this speaks to the broader influence of this culture of entrepreneurship that uh, uh, that um, is connected to uh, a radical view of individualism and uh, the sense that you are your own business, you are a company of one in Carrie Lane's, you know, uh, app term, and, and that uh, you uh, need to brand yourself and, and develop your skills in order to prosper in this dynamic and changing economy. And, and the entrepreneur is, you know, the kind of uh, extreme case of that or ideal type of, of that kind of sensibility uh, where he or she, you know, is, is starting a venture and, and uh, you know, needs to display all these kind of characteristics of, uh, of polish and sophistication in order to, to make that work, in addition to the, the grit and hard work uh, that the American ethic uh, uh, demands. And so, uh, so, yeah, that's what I'm doing now is trying to talk to uh, um, uh, students going through these programs and, and see, you know, their progress in, in, uh, in starting and running their ventures and, and understand, you know, what kind of uh, problems they experience in doing so, um, which have a lot to do with uh, issues of, of gender and race and class, uh, you know, but also, you know, what this broader turn in the economy says for better or for worse um, in terms of people, you know, uh, training for this new economy, training to be entrepreneurs, which is not just a thing at VCU, but across the board and at universities nowadays, uh, this kind of learning uh, experiential learning that uh, they're engaged in. And I think that, um, you know, this, in many ways, it could be a good thing in terms of people wanting more out of their careers than just working a nine to five, you know, job or a corporate job or so on. They want to do something meaningful and they want to start something new. But what are the kind of roadblocks they encounter along the ways? And, and really, does that, what happens when that, that idealism hits? Uh, the the kind of wall of the the rally of this new economy uh, where you know it's it's become increasingly unequal and it's become uh, increasingly unforgiving of um, a, a lack of success right mm. so um, so yeah that's the broader project uh, which I think is related to uh, what I've done in the past. Yeah, it sounds like in some ways it's the comes off as the flip side to uh, to what you've looked at, but they're going to be grappling with many of the same issues, uh, confronted by many of the same conditions as the workers you studied in the, uh, in, in Michigan and Canada. Yeah. In some ways, uh, unemployment as well too, uh, can be a big <laughs> sure. like, uh, issue here. Um, and, uh, which is kind of funny because, uh, um, you know, uh, my colleague Jesse Goldstein, who's, you know, written about, uh, uh entrepreneurs, uh, you know, came across a number of entrepreneurs who, uh, were basically unemployed people, what, but called themselves strategic consultants, right? <laughs> so that's <laughs> a way to deal with the fact you're unemployed is just, you have a new name for it, have a, uh, you are a company, just one that doesn't have any work at the moment. Right, right. <laughs> Well, when that book comes out, uh, we look forward to having you back on, hopefully. <laughs> so thank yeah, you so much. much. Yeah, thanks, yeah, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Take care.